You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. And Christianity at the time. Because at first he believed that he was right in line with Roman Catholic doctrine, um, but as he started convincing other monks around him um, at Wittenberg, the monastery, uh, he was convincing the other monks of his positions, and this is where he posted his 95 theses. Uh, Raj covered a little bit of this last week, uh, so I won't go into it too much, um, but his 95 theses, these were proposed topics for academic debates at the time, so he was raising questions is what he was doing. Um, the church door itself was the local bulletin board, um, the academic bulletin board, and it, all of these things were written in Latin, which is the academic language at the time. Um, but these copies, copies of his 95 Theses made it to his students and made it to his followers, and they were translated into German and published and distributed. So his superiors got hold of these, uh, which was dangerous because some of the stances that he had in these um, on the indulgences called into question the Catholic system of penance, and it even called into question the authority of the Pope himself. Um, and as time went on, he forced himself to reconsider some of his stances on the Roman, Catherine, Roman Catholic doctrine in general. Uh, so he continued to publish pamphlets on various positions, uh, and this eventually led to him being summoned by the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, where he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant. So many view Luther as a hero, and in many ways, he was a hero. Uh, he stood for the Holy Scriptures in spite of fear and great personal danger, but he was not perfect, for we all should fall short of the glory of God. Uh, his personality was larger than life, bombastic. He was extravagant in his praise, but also in his condemnation. Uh, he was known for his anti-Semitic views at the time that were extreme, even for his day, and his contempt for his enemies led him to speak words that at times he regretted for their harshness. Uh, he spoke what he saw as truth in the moment with more concern for its immediate effectiveness than for its far-reaching consequences. But, however, God used Martin Luther for a number of things, despite his failings and shortcomings. Uh, he began to revolutionize an understanding in scripture. Um, his principles of translation through his translation, or he established principles of translation through his translation of the Bible from the Latin and the Greek into German so that the people could read it and have it. Um, and God used him to teach and to write and to preach until the day he died at 62. He was very ill at the end of his life. He lost the ability to speak before he lost the ability to write. And his last words that we have from him were, we are beggars, this is true. Now, an important part of Martin Luther's story and that of the Reformation in general was his marriage to Katerina von Bora. And I will have Sarah introduce her. She's a pretty interesting woman. Um, <clears throat> Katerina von Bora was born in 1499 to a wealthy noble family in Saxony. But when she was very young, her mother died. And after her father remarried, he sent her to a boarding school at a Benedictine abbey, and then later to a less expensive nunnery called Marian Throne, where she then became a nun. <clears throat> um, her days at the convent were spent in a very orderly and structured manner of um, chores and prayers, services and meals. And although there was a lot going on in the outside world, 
not very much changed inside the convent until one day someone who was probably a merchant named Leonard Coppa, a friend of Martin Luther's, started smuggling Luther's teachings into the convent in deliveries of supplies. Um, this caused the nuns to rebel. Many of them were very convicted by Luther's writings and wrote to their families to see if they could leave the convent. Um, but this became very difficult because it was expensive and hard to free a nun from her vows. And uh, many people were worried because you had to pay heavy fines if you were caught helping a nun escape. And even in the place where, in the province where Marian Throne was, a nun could be executed, executed for trying to escape. Um, nevertheless, the nuns uh, enlisted the help of Leonard Coppa to send a letter to Martin Luther himself, and together they all hatched a plan. So early in the morning of Easter, 1523, the nuns uh, were helped by Leonard Coppa and his nephew to hide in a wagon full of barrels of herring and were smuggled out of the convent, uh, 12 in all, Katharina, who's then 24, included among them. Um, they made it safely to the city of Torgau, which was under the protection of the Protestant friendly ruler, Frederick the Wise, where many of them changed into casual secular clothing for the first time in decades. Um, a few of the nuns were able to return to their families, but the rest were taken under the protection of Martin Luther, who promised to find husbands and situations for all of them. He was successful for finding all of them except for Katerina. Um, the family of one of her suitors actually rejected the suit because they wouldn't let their son marry a penniless ex-nun. Katerina herself rejected another suitor who was a colleague of Martin Luther's because she had objections to his character. And when questioned about her choice by another of Martin Luther's friends named von Amstorf, uh, Katerina responded that although she would not marry that man, she was not above marrying von Amstorf or even Luther himself. Um, <clears throat> Although Luther, who was living under the threat of assassination and possible arrest for heresy and was very devoted to his spiritual life, um, was not inclined to marry, he had come under the criticism of a lot of people who accused him of not practicing as he preached by marrying. His father really wanted a male heir, and he was still responsible for Katerina, who he had freed from the nunnery. And so, after a lot of prayer and counsel, he asked her to marry him, and Katerina, true to her word, agreed. Um, the first night that Katerina spent at the Black Cloister, which was the monastery that was given to Martin Luther to live and work in, uh, she spent on sheets that had been unwashed for months on a bed that was made out of hay. Uh, as it turns out, Martin Luther, who was generous to a fault, was not very concerned with day-to-day -day affairs and had let his household fall into chaos. Uh, he happily handed it over to Katerina's capable hands and she transformed the place. She cleaned and reno uh, renovated the house. She procured land for a garden and orchard and for raising livestock on. She took over the running of a sizable brewery, which then earned the family income and allowed them and gave them plenty of beer for all of their gatherings. <laughs> um, yeah, she was able to transform the cloister into not only a home for her six children and a number of, of, of orphans who they adopted, but also as a central gathering place for members of the Reformation. 
Luther Hausa rarely had fewer than 30 or 40 guests at a time. And indeed, the biographer Albrecht Thomas wrote, visitors from princes to itinerant students, foreign envoys and unemployed schoolmasters, poor widows and ousted preachers, escaped monks and freed nuns, Englishmen and Frenchmen, Bohemians and Hungarians, and African relatives and friends all sat at Katerina's table for a day, a week, or a year. The couple became known for their table talks, which often had more um, hopeful guests than they could actually accommodate. Katerina selected the guests, she prepared the food, she arranged seating, collected payment, and then with her husband's encouragement, participated freely in the conversation. Luther ran the discussions, often asking about the activities of his enemies or the latest news of the day. Um, and often, people were so engrossed in the conversation and in taking notes that uh, they forgot to eat, which was greatly to the annoyance of Katerina. Uh, Katerina and Martin Luther had a genuinely affectionate marriage. He called her Kate and not liked to tease her. Uh, Katerina also helped Luther deal with bouts of depression, although occasionally her counsel failed and she had to find other means. Uh, one time she chose to put on a black dress and when her husband noticed, he asked her if she was going to a funeral and she said, no, but since you act as though God is dead, I wanted to join you in your mourning. Luther apparently recovered soon after. <laughs> Um, after Martin Luther's death in, 15, in 1546, Katerina had some trouble making ends meet. <clears throat> Through the law of the day, although she was allowed to stay in Luther Hausa, she had trouble, she had to fight to take care of her children. And soon after, the family had to repeatedly flee Wittenberg where they lived because of wars in the area and then because of the plague. And it was when they were fleeing the plague on the road to Torgau that the wagon that was carrying the, the horses that were pulling the wagon that the family was in were startled. And Katerina jumped out of the wagon to try to protect her children and calm the horses, but fell and rolled into a ditch that was filled with water. She was brought to the city and after three months of illness, she died, clinging in her words to Christ like a burr to a dress. Katerina von Bora Luther was a godly woman who served her Lord wherever he led her. As a nun, as a household servant, as a wife, a mother, a homemaker, a gardener, a brewmaster, cook, and estate manager. She exemplified the Proverbs 31 woman, bringing food from afar, purchasing land, and managing her household and estates. And, as the Proverbs predict, her husband praised her for it. Martin Luther once said, I would not trade my Kate for France or Venice for three reasons. First, because God gave her to me and me to her. Second, because I have seen time and again that other women have more faults than my Kate. Third, she is a faithful marriage partner. She is loyal and has integrity. He also said, the letter, the letter to Galatians is my beloved epistle. I trust it. It is my Kate von Bora. Thank you. I have... <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm presently working my way through uh, a biography of Luther um, called Martin Luther um, by Eric Metaxas, and it is fascinating. He is, a, he is an awesome writer. I read his biography on Bonhoeffer. He's an awesome writer. He's very detailed. Uh, not only a fascination of Luther, uh, the weird guy that he is, but yet the uh, influential guy that he is, but also the Times and the Reformation. It's fascinating. Uh, one disclaimer, however, I'm listening to the book. It is 20 hours long, which means 
if you read it, it's about this thick. So, but I commend it to you to work through it because it tells you not only a lot about the Reformation, but a lot about the theology that we take for granted today, some of which I'm going to share with you today. Um, let me just begin with, with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump right into our message. Lord, I thank you for this day. We thank you for people like Luther and Kate who, who went before us 500 years ago, and yet we're still talking about them, their faith, and how you worked in them and through them. And we know that you've been doing that through people all through those 500 years, and well before then. We pray that you continue to work in us. You're the, it's the same God. You're the, it's the same gospel that we're believing and declaring. I pray that we can also be transformed as they were and have the influence in our community, in our nation, as they did. So we thank you in your name. Amen. I think it could be said without much protest that we live in an age of protest, ubiquitous in the news, in the social media, uh, in social conversations. Our culture is obsessed with making it clear what we're against, what we find wrong with the other people, right? And the numerous evils, both personal and public, that we insist need to be addressed, and they need to be addressed now. Pick uh, uh, any category of public and private life, and you'll find things that people are determined to protest, whether it's social justice or economic inequality or varying options of sexuality. All of them have something we should speak to, but always have somebody who protests in disagreement. We can't even watch an NFL football game without somebody protesting by kneeling or not kneeling, and then others protesting because they knelt or didn't kneel. It's ubiquitous in our culture. I was reading an article recently, and the, the article said that we live in an age of outrage du jour, outrage of the day. And he said this, quote, Every month there is a new outrage demanding my attention. One of my biggest distractions is the urge to address every one of them right now. And that's his emphasis, right now. Do you ever feel that way? It is easy to become overwhelmed, and as that author said, to be distracted by the protests that seem to be demanding our attention. Because of this, I think many Christians have uh, withdrawn. They have become defensive. They have taken a defensive posture, and they, the idea they're thinking, or maybe not they're thinking as much as they're feeling, is that, that if we disengage, we avoid the controversial subjects, then we can shield ourselves from the inevitable attacks that will come with those. Again, do you ever feel that way? I want to be clear with you today that I think we should do just the opposite. As Christians, Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming churches, we should be great protesters. Great protesters. We should be in the forefront and clearly taking a stand on truth and justice. We should be taking our protesting seriously, we should do it boldly, and we should engage in it relentlessly. Amen? I, mean, I don't know, Royce. You're making me a little nervous here. I say this because protesting is our Christian heritage. Protesting is our Christian heritage. We as evangelical Christians have a long history of protesting. As they just mentioned a few moments ago, this past October 31st, a week, couple weeks ago, was the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 Theses to the door in 1517. 
And although the Protestant Reformation is much more than one man and one event, it is much more than that, it is, this event commonly is viewed as the spark of the Protestant Reformation that set the whole Europe ablaze with the gospel. Notice that it's called the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, or in our vernacular, the Protesters' Reformation. That's what it was about. Many of the things that we take for granted in the churches today, such as Bibles in our own language, such as preaching through the Bible to a congregation, such as congregational singing as a congregation on Sunday, began in the Protestant Reformation. Today, we assume that's what all churches do. Prior to that time, they did not do those things. In fact, the Bible in the vernacular did not even exist in any language. Luther was the first one to translate one into German. There was others into English. It happened during the Reformation. Prior to that, it was Greek, Hebrew, or Latin. Now, at this point, I need to pause and make sure we make an important, important clarification. The reality is that languages change over time, right? Uh, Especially over 500 years. So words that are used in a particular context over time morph and change meaning. In fact, some of them can actually, after a period of time, become to mean the opposite of what they originally meant. And the word protest is one of those words. During the 15, its meaning changed since when it, how it was used during the Protestant Reformation. During the time of the Reformation, the word protest referred to the public testimony or declaration of something, not against something. You got that? The word protest, when they were protesting, they were talking about what they were for. They were being public and verbal. I am for this. They did not emphasize, the word does not emphasize what they were against. In the mid-15th century, it means, it means to declare or state formally or solemnly. It comes from the French, which comes from the Latin. It means to declare publicly, to testify, to protest. We would, a common thing that we might say, if somebody's accused of something, we would say they would protest their innocence. They would declare their innocence. Okay? That's the way the word is meant to use. The, the, the protest in the meaning of a statement of disapproval first recorded in 1751, over 200 years later. 200 years later. And in fact, for it to, be clearest, for it to become an adjective which is expressing dissent from or rejection of prevailing mores, first appears in 1953 with the Civil Rights Movement. So it's important that when we talk about Protestants and Protestants, what they are declaring and what we are declaring, our heritage as Christians is that we declare what we're for much more than we worry about what we're against. Now, why is this important for us? Well, because, as I said, hopefully and, and that we can be Christians who are great protesters, who can be clear about what we're for, and that we should take seriously and do it boldly and engage in it relentlessly, not, again, what we're against, but what we are for, the gospel of Christ. Well, that leads us to a question. Well, in the Protestant Reformation, what was it they were for? What was it that Martin Luther and other reformers that we're going to hear about in the coming weeks, what was it that they were declaring to people? 
And by implications, if they say we're for this, then other people reacted. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, and others reacted against it. But their emphasis is on this is the Scripture. This is what it teaches. Well, one summary, it's only one summary, but a common summary of that is the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas of the Reformation, the series we're doing now. We have them up here. Sola Scriptura, we looked at last week. Solus Christus, we're looking at this week. Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Deo Gloria. Scripture alone is authority. Christ alone is our Savior. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. In fact, in our, in our um, Red Sea membership covenant, which we have as members, we have a statement with 12 points on it. And this is what we agree to. And our prelude says this, As people who are recipients of God the Father's steadfast love and are united through the gospel of Jesus Christ to the best of our ability and with enablement of the Holy Spirit, we solemnly and joyfully make this mutual commitment with one another. In, in so doing, now listen to this, we acknowledge being true and agreeing with the following. What is it that we as members of Red Sea, the first thing, acknowledge of being true and agree with? You guys all memorized your membership covenants, didn't you? Have it on the refrigerator? Okay, let me tell you anyways, okay? This is the first point. Scripture alone is the foundation of faith and practice. It teaches that we are saved through the saving work of Jesus Christ alone, not by our own righteousness. By grace alone, not by our own merit. Through faith alone not by our own effort, all for the glory of God alone. In other words, the five solas. That's the very first thing we agree to, because it's a summary of the gospel. Today we're going to unpack solus Christus, some, some aspects of it, not, not to great depth because of, it, of our time. Solus Christus is that, that line in there, we are saved through the saving work of Jesus Christ alone, not by our own righteousness, not by our own righteousness. His sinless life, his substitutionary atonement, his resurrection from the dead are the only grounds, the only grounds for our justification, our reconciliation to God, and our sanctification, our growing in maturity in the gospel. Christ alone is our mediator between God and mankind. It is important that we're clear that when we understand what we understand and believe about Jesus, who he is, why he came, what he accomplished, and that, that God, we know this because it's communicated to us through the scriptures. I need to remind us of that before we move on. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is the foundation for our faith and practice. Scripture is the foundation and the authority for what we as Christians believe and how we live in light of what we believe. Um, this might, this might um, um, seem for us at Red Sea kind of obvious, but for many in the world, that is a new idea. And when, there's, when the exchange of disagreement comes across, we are going to refer to Scripture first and foremost. Others will not. But we need to make sure we're grounded in the Scripture. Sola Scriptura leads us to Christ. For example, just one of many verses, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, For I declared to you what is of first importance, that I received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Paul's saying that his message, he didn't make it up. He didn't just think of it on the fly. This is something that is rooted and founded in Scripture. So to Scripture, we must go to understand what solus Christus means. Will you stand with me as we read 1 Timothy 2? We're going to read through the passage today, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read this. It also should be up on the screen if you want to follow along. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. 
First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we, need, that we, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony at its proper time. Let me just pray again. Lord, we thank you for this word. We pray that you, through your spirit you help us to understand it, not just mentally, but in our hearts, and let us respond to it in repentance and faith, as each of us here in this room need to. We thank you in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm just going to take a couple minutes just to walk through these verses, just to walk through them, to highlight some things. This is one of a number of passages we could have looked at, but it's the one I landed on for this week. He says in verse 1, First of all, then, I urge you that these kinds of prayers be made for all people. Uh, there is an importance to what Paul is saying here to Timothy. He says, I urge you then. He's, he's, he's expressing that, hey, hey, pay attention. I've been writing to you a number of things. I'm shifting gear a little bit. Pay attention. Don't lose your train of thought, Timothy. And he's saying that we should be praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. We don't have time to unpack all that, but in his list of prayers, there's some, we need to pray very specifically for very specific people sometimes. Sometimes we just need to pray as an acts of worship, and sometimes we need to just pray generically for all sorts of people. Sometimes we just need to give thanks to God for what he's doing in us and through us. All those things to be done. But verse, verse uh, 2 it continues his train of thought. He says, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, a godly and dignified in every way. Our prayers should include civil authorities. To pray, notice, to pray for them. Not to pray against them. To pray for them. And, and with this objective, that we lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. This seems contrary to pray for our civil leaders. This what he describes, why we should do that. Peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified. Seems contrary to the age of protests and outrage that we're in today. But our goal is peace in our communities. He goes on in verse 3. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, and then I'm going to go to four, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Notice that the overarching goal of prayer, the overarching goal of praying for our civil leaders, to live peaceful lives, is that all people could be saved. Praying like this and for this purpose pleases God. There are things in the scripture we're told, this pleases God. Praying that way for those things pleases God. Think about our Deploy to Culture Challenge. And we have you list out those five people you're praying for. As you're praying for them, I encourage you to think the fact that you're praying for them, that they would come to the know of the knowledge of the truth and come to know Christ as their Savior is pleasing to God. As you're praying, he is rejoicing. He's glad that you're doing that. He says, God our Savior. God is our Savior. We, contrary to what sometimes we feel and want to be, we are not our Savior, even with God's help. We are not the Savior. God is. He is the one who created us, against whom we have sinned, him we have sinned in, in our selfish rebellion. God alone is the only one who can determine the, the solution to the problem that our sin brings. He, it's sin against him. He's the one who decides how to take care of that problem. And he says there, what does that mean? He says, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God has a specific way for people to be saved. Through the truth. Through the truth. The truth. 
God's revealed truth of Scripture. Well, what is this truth that God wants people to come to the knowledge of so that they can be saved? Well, he doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us in verse 5. Excuse me. Notice verse 5 begins... Can you give me my water? Notice verse 5 begins with the word for. For. He's connecting it to what he just said. For. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. For there is one God, just one, and only one. He is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. I think when I think about that, the verse that I've memorized and comes back to me often is Exodus 14, 11. Who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, a worker of wonders. That's the one God that is saving us and working in us. And he says, and there is one mediator between God and men. One mediator. Well, why do we need a mediator? If There's one God, and he says, and there's one mediator. Why do we need a mediator? Sin in our lives, and we've talked about this recently as we went through Genesis, the first part of Genesis, sin always results in alienation and corruption. Any sin in our life, a fruit of that, a result of that, a consequence of that, whether big or little, is always alienation and corruption. And first of all, with our relationships with God, and always with our relationship with God, but also with each other. When we suffer at each other's hands because of sin, it's alienation and corruption. Alienation is the breaking of relationship due to incompatibility or hostility. It's not only do we do that, uh, not do what God's desires and requires of us, but we don't even want to. We don't even want to. We're alienated from him. But then there's also corruption because of this sin. We, we are corrupted. We're dysfunctional to the call and command of God in our lives. We are unable to do something ourselves. We are unable to do what he desires and requires of us. It's not even just that we don't want to. Even if we did want to, we are unable, left to ourselves, to do that. Well, what is a mediator? Since we need one of them, and what is a mediator? Well, because people, all people, everywhere, at all times, are sinners and thus alienated from God and corrupt in their service to God, we are not only separated from God, but we also deserve his just wrath and punishment something our culture has trouble with, but the Scripture clearly teaches. Because of God's perfect holiness and justice, we, he cannot simply overlook sin. He can't say, ah, let's just forget about it. If he did that, he'd cease to be a just and righteous God. We want him to forget about our sin, but not the other people's sin. But God can't do that. Therefore, we need someone to come between God and us in order to deal with our sin, and at the same time, satisfy God's justice. This go-between person is a mediator. Two, two parties in hostility with each other cannot get together. The mediator steps in to reconcile them. In God's economy of justice, this mediator had to be able to perfectly represent mankind to God and, at the same time, represent God to mankind. Now, no person in fallen humanity could do this because of their sin. Anything they do, uh, punishment for their sin, they'd already deserve. That doesn't work. Some people suggest, well, an angel could do that. Maybe an angel could have been the mediator, but angels are not human. They can't represent the humans to God. There is only one person who has ever been able to fill this unique requirement and role, and that is 
the man, Christ Jesus, listed in our passage. The man, Christ, Savior, Anointed One, Jesus. Jesus is fully man, identifying completely with humanity. At the same time, Jesus is fully God, a person of the triune Godhead, thus completely sinless and holy. Jesus did not just act as representatives. He didn't just say, hey, everybody, let's just get along. What he did is he stepped in as the perfect man, as the perfect God. And he took the punishment. He stepped in and took an action. He dealt with our sin, satisfying, dying on the cross and satisfying God's justice. So that now God can look to us and say, all the penalty is taken care of. Even though humans are sinful, in Christ the penalty is taken care of. And people can look at God and say, yes, I'm sinful and you, I deserve your punishment, but, but because of Christ, I am holy and blameless. When you look at me, you look at Christ. That's what Paul's talking about here as a mediator. In fact, in verse 6, he explains, unpacks what I just said. Verse 6, he who gave himself to ransom of all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. God the Son was sent by the Father to pay, to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus did not pay the devil to ransom humanity as, as mistakenly and wrongly is told sometimes. Jesus satisfied God's own penalty, absorbed God's wrath, directed our sinfulness. As a human, yet sinless, he perfectly represented hum- humanity. As God, he himself was infinite value to pay the price and to absorb the wrath that God poured out in him because of us. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says this, For our sake, for our people, our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took the sin that was ours, placed it on Christ, punished him for that. Now that that's been paid for, that righteousness, the rightness, the perfection, the holiness, the blamelessness is now ours because we, as we believe in Christ. We are not only forgiven our sins and the penalty removed, but now we have the righteousness of God, his righteousness. Not just we're sinless and that we didn't do anything wrong. We have God's own righteousness for eternity. That's what Paul was saying in those verses. Now this combination of unique identity and sufficient work is huge in the gospel. And it's, it is, why, it is what makes him the only true mediator on our behalf. As our mediator, Christ provides us a way of overcoming the alienation and corruption of sin and to experience the reconciliation and restoration from the gospel. From alienation, that we are separated and at hostility with God, we can get reconciliation. The alienation that breaks our relationship with God is removed. So now we can know God. We can know His love. We can know His purpose for our life. And through an ever-increasing close relationship, we can keep growing and knowing Him. At the same time, because of the corruption that we have, we are dysfunctional. We are now restored or sanctified. We progressively replace uh, our, our dysfunction with our loving obedience, not just our obedience in action, but in our hearts, in our minds, in our wills, and in our communities. That's what he means for him to be our mediator. Now notice in this passage, we're going to shift gears here a little bit, notice in this passage that Paul, that Paul emphasizes all people repeatedly, and at the same time, the one mediator, repeatedly. The, his plain, the use of those languages is not accidental. We need to make sure we understand how he's playing that against. All people, verse 1, prayers are made for all people. Verse 4, 
who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Verse 5, there is one mediator between God and men, plural, all people. And verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, again, all people. But in, intertwined with those is his emphasis on the one mediator. Verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, what truth? He says it in verse 5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, singular, the man, Christ Jesus. Verse 6, he gave himself to ransom of all, himself. This truth that there is one God and one mediator between God and man is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel we are to proclaim and we are to protest boldly to the community around us and to our own hearts. Um, and this is not the only passage. We could go to a number of places. I'm only going to highlight two, just two other extremely clear passages so we can look at that. John 14.6, for example. John 14.6. We can be up here. Um, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He explicitly says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he reverses it and says, just in case we want to make sure that there's any other way, no one comes to the Father except through me. Then in Acts chapter 4, when Peter got in trouble with the Jewish leaders for healing, uh, healing a man, um, part of Peter's response was, he says this, starting in chapter uh, verse 10, but then we're going to highlight verse 12. He says, Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he names him where he is from and where he's at, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. That's the key event that he wants them to remember. By him, this man stands before you well. They healed the guy. This, this Jesus, again, naming his name, this Jesus, not another Jesus, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then verse 12, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's making it perfectly clear. There is nobody else. One way. Now, this truth that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, uh, the Christ Jesus, is the heart of the gospel message, is one of the primary offenses of the gospel, particularly in our culture. This is offensive, especially in our pluralistic culture. It is, it is common in our culture for people to object that there being one God, if there's a God at all, and especially that there's only one way to get right to that God. If, if, you, if they say, if you, if you believe that Jesus is the only way, then, then you're narrow-minded. You're a bigot. And the worst offense of all in our culture is that you're intolerant of other people and other views. Have you... I mean, I'm sure we have all heard this, whether it's on the TV, movies, social media, the conversations you have with other people. I think this is so pervasive in our culture that it's assumed status quo for our culture. And this is why Christians are always viewed as wrong, because they're intolerant. They're, they're narrow. And let's that's, and that's also be honest at this point. Have you also struggled with that? Have you yourself struggled with the oneness of the gospel, that there's only one way, that the message is so narrow and that maybe, maybe you've thought and wrestled with the idea, maybe, maybe this really is unfair. Maybe this is unfair to other people who believe other things. They mean well. Maybe there's other options. 
Now, I, for, I want to assure you that I think it's important that all of us, Christians, non-Christians, wrestle with these issues. It's important, even as us who believe the gospel, sometimes we have to wrestle with the singularity, the explicitness of the gospel, and it makes us uncomfortable. It's okay. Let's just work through those things. Let's don't deny them or hide them or be fearful. So how do we respond to this resistance of our culture and our minds, uh, uh, that, in our culture and in our own minds, that the explicitness of the gospel? How, how do we respond to that? That's too narrow. Well, let me give you three ways. Three ways that I think are profitable. First of all, the focus of our response to, again, other people or ourselves, should not be on what I believe, but on what the Scripture teaches. should not be on what I believe, but on what the Scripture teaches. Remember Sola Scriptura? Scripture alone is our final authority for matters of faith and practice. If you get into a you-believe-this-and-I-believe-that argument with someone, there will not be winners. You always go toe-to-toe. That's your opinion. This is my opinion. It will never be resolved. Don't bother. As in Peter is, as Peter is in, in it, but in our response should be, it's not just what I believe when I say that Jesus is the only way. It's not just what I believe, and I do believe it, but it's also what Jesus himself believed. It is also what the New Testament writers believed about Jesus. And then we are to show them those verses. Not argue about them, but show them in this passage, in this scripture. Does it or does it not say those things? Is it hard to understand Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me? No, the meaning is pretty clear. You might not like it, but the meaning is pretty clear. When Peter says that there's, uh, salvation is found in no one else, there's no other name under heaven given by men that must be saved, was he unclear with what he meant? Do we, do we have to think of some secret formula to unpack that? No, he was pretty straightforward. When Paul gives a summary in our passage, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the Christ, man Christ Jesus, that's pretty straightforward. We need to, in our own hearts and with others, wrestle with what the Scripture says, not just our opinions. Then those objections, with objections, again, other people ourselves, as we wrestle with them, must then step in faith and say, do we believe what it says or do we not? Which leads to the second response. The second, the second and we respond to the resistance of our culture that our minds are to the explicitness of the gospel and understand the gospel message is that we need to understand that the gospel itself as a message is a polarizing message. It is a polarizing message. What do I mean by that? By its very nature and by its very intent by God, the message of the gospel that Christ died for our sins is to be accepted or it is to be rejected. Those are the only two options. Those are the only two options, the only two responses. And to think that you or someone else can remain neutral and indecisive is is to make a decision to reject the message. People, including ourselves, cannot remain ambivalent to the gospel message. You either accept it, as it's stated, or you reject it, as it's stated. It's clearly a thought in Scripture. And our culture, again, sometimes ourselves, we don't like the definitive nature of the gospel. We don't like that. It cuts against the grain of our own hearts and of our own culture. People don't like the Scripture repeatedly tells them that there are people in God's kingdom, and there are other people who are outside of God's kingdom. There are people who are saved, and there are people who are not saved. 
We do not like those categories of in and out. And yet the Scripture clearly and repeatedly uses that language. Jesus himself uses that language. Famous verses, John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes, it's open-ended, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever, through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Why is he condemned already? Jesus tells us, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. There is an in and out. Jesus offered. We're all condemned. He offers life. Those who respond to the gospel message positively receive life. Those who don't stay in their sin. That makes us very uncomfortable. We should, we should not be surprised that the gospel message is polarizing. In fact, if it's not polarizing, if we're talking to people about the gospel and they don't have a little bit of struggle with those kind of things, we're probably not clear on what we're saying to them. Thirdly, in response to the resistance of the explicitness of the gospel is to help people, is the, the third response to those who resist is to help people ask better questions ask better questions, and thus redirect their thinking. I got this from listening to a message by R.C. Sproul, a theologian, a teacher. It was very helpful. He said, when, when people say to him, isn't God narrow and limiting? Why does he provide only one way of salvation? This is R.C.'s response. He says, I don't know why God didn't provide more ways, but it is clear that he provided this one way. A better question, R.C. says, is this. Why did God provide any way at all to people who universally reject him? You get the difference? We want to know why there's not five or six or a dozen ways. R.C. is saying we should be amazed that there's any way at all. Let's wrestle with that question. We have grown up in a Western culture with a proliferation of options, TV stations, clothing, education, grocery stores with aisles of hundreds of products with every category. Water. How many different kinds of water, for crying out loud, can there be? But we, we choose from them. We have our preferences. Vacation destinations, houses, furniture, recreation, on and on and on. In virtually everything in our lives, there's an endless possibilities of choices. And we want the same in our relationship with God. So we assume that we should, we should have our options for what we believe about God and what we don't, what we feel is good and what we don't, and the options of getting right with God and what we don't. We get that choice. That's an inalienable right. Not a biblical right, but it's our culture's right. And yet the Scripture is clear that God provides one way, a specific way. Instead of viewing this limitation as narrow, we should focus on the fact that the gospel message of Jesus, he has removed the confusion, the contradictions, and the guesswork on what it means to knowing God and having peace with our souls and peace in our lives. Instead of wrestling with all the options, I'm trying to say, let's just focus on the one message that is. It'll alleviate that confusion, the contradictions. It takes the guesswork out of it. Doesn't that make it a whole lot easier to get right with God and have his peace? I think so, and I think that's what R.C. is trying to get to. Two, really quickly, two more important observations about Solus Christus. 
We are saved through the saving work of Jesus Christ alone, which is what I've been emphasizing. Not by our own righteousness. Not by our own righteousness. The first observation, as I thought about this recently, is it occurred to me that maybe part of people's resistance to the exclusiveness of the message of the gospel, both other people around us, but also ourselves, is that they do not think that they need to be saved. They do not think they need to be saved. Christ, we are saved through the saving work of Jesus Christ alone. Well, if you don't think you need to be saved, then the message is pointless and powerless. In general, I think people want to pursue happiness or fulfillment or satisfaction or pleasure. Basically, they want their problems to go away, and if they do, they're good to go. But they do not view themselves as lost. They do not view themselves as separated from God who created them, which is less which much less personally deserving God's just wrath for us. I was recently listening to uh, reading something by Al Mohler, again, a, a theologian, and he says this, which caught my attention. He said, If all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, then Buddha will do. If all we need is a collected gods of every, for every occasion and need and hope, Hinduism will do. If all we need is a tribal deity, then any tribal deity will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. If all we need is a set of rules and a way of devotion, Mohammed or Joseph Smith will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into our sovereign self for crying out loud, Oprah will do. But if we need a savior, only Jesus will do. Maybe the message that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, men, the man Christ Jesus, is an answer to a question that people are not asking. They're not asking. Our solution is to a problem that they don't think they have. This probably should inform the way we pray for our people in our Deploy to Culture Challenge. We should be praying not just that they come to Christ, which we should, but that they need to know that they're separated from God. That should be part of our prayers. The second observation is this, is that we are saved through faith by the work of Christ alone, not by our own righteousness. The reality is that most people do not do trust in their own righteousness, their own rightness. Poll after poll have shown that people who believe in God and the existence of heaven are confident that they're going to heaven. Confident. Why? And they give a variety of reasons. Although they acknowledge that they're not perfect, they assume that either they're not so bad that God would exclude them from heaven, and uh, the easy way to do that is see all the people around me who are a lot worse than I am, so he's got to let me in. Or the other one is God is so loving, he, as a loving God, he would not keep me from heaven, much less send me to a place called hell, because that wouldn't be loving. The irony and the problem is that we view everything from the perspective of our own self-worth, our own righteousness, which Paul said we cannot save ourselves with. And therefore, we miss the amazing depth of the cross. Let me, let, let me have John Piper explain. Man-centered humans are amazed that God should withhold life and joy from his creatures. 
But the God-centered Bible is amazed that God should withhold judgment from sinners. It horribly skews the meaning of the cross when contemporary prophets of self-esteem say that the cross is a witness of my infinite worth since God was willing to pay such a high price to get me. The biblical perspective is that the cross is a witness of the infinite worth of God's glory and the witness of the immensity of the sin of my pride. What should shock us is that we have brought such contempt on the worth of God that the very death of his son is required to vindicate that worth. The cross stands as a witness to the infinite worth of God and the infinite outrage of sin. It, it too, it took an, an, an infinitely costly death of the God, Son of God to repair the dishonor my pro, that my pride has brought against the glory of God. That's what R.C. Sproul was saying about being amazed that why God provided any way at all for us to come to know him. Solus Christus, we are saved through the saving work of Jesus Christ alone, not by our own righteousness. In the coming weeks, we're going to take a look at sola gratia, by, faith, by grace alone, and sola fide, sola fide uh, by, through faith alone. And as we unpack that, we'll unpack solus Christus in greater detail on how we respond to those messages. At this time, I want to invite you to receive communion. If you've responded to the gospel message that Christ died for your sins, then we invite you to come up as the songs start playing. And we're going to uh, come up, take off a piece of bread, and dip it in the wine or the juice and take it as a celebration of that Christ is your mediator. We encourage you to do that. As we do that, I want to remind you of the song we're about to sing, In Christ Alone, In Christ Alone. I'm going to ask that you sing this song boldly in protest. And these are the words you're going to sing. The second, the second verse. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. I live. Let's celebrate the life we have in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.